Hey, Justin. Yes, David. I've come up with a way to save the TV industry. And what is that? A podcast all about TV shows and the people that make them happen. Good. When are we going to start it? Ten seconds ago. This is TV Show and Tell. Welcome to TV Show and Tell your favourite TV industry podcast of all the podcasts you're listening to at this very moment. I'm David Bodicum. I'm a TV consultant and games producer from London. And I'm Justin Scroggy, known internationally as the Format Doctor. And in this episode, we've got more of our interview with the developer of The Weakest Link and the MD of production company Mighty Productions, Lynn Sutcliffe. We'll also return to our mini-series on pitching, what to say and do when you get into the room. But first, it's time for some of the media stories that have caught our eye in recent weeks. So it's over to Justin at the news desk. So one of the first things that I've noticed is that NBC in the United States has cancelled Million Dollar Island. Oh, yes. So the Million Dollar Island is this uh, big Survivor-like competition series. There's 100 contestants and they're put on an island for 50 days and they basically got to compete for the chance to win a million dollars. This was a big splash at MIP TV. It was originally a Dutch format and had been picked up by a number of broadcasters around the world. The NBC version is a co-pro between NBC and Studio Lambert, who reportedly are also making the UK version. The reason it's interesting, I don't know the reason for it for its cancellation. The speculation is that it's to do with its budget. What's interesting to me is what happens when the Americans pull out of a of a license deal because received wisdom is that people who have shows in production or in development keep a very close eye on the on the American version. And when the American version goes down, it quite often takes licenses down with it because everyone has said, oh, well, it's been made in Holland, and presumably it was very successful, but let's wait and see what the American version is like, and it's the American version that they want to make a copy of. Yeah. So, you know, it's been picked up by Seven in Australia, by NBC in the Middle East, and as I said, I think there's a UK version in a pipeline. So it'll be interesting to see whether they all go ahead or whether there was any kind of domino effect as a result. I always think it's a very extreme thing to do to cancel a show that you sort of bid rights for and started to make, and then all of a sudden you, you sort of go, actually, we'd rather not make mm. this. I mean, the last time we had this in the UK that I can remember was Rising Star, yeah. where ITV bid for the rights. I think directly, suddenly everybody got cold feet about it, and then they said, actually, we're not even going to sh- finish production. Well, Rising Star was simply failing around the world. That was the problem. It had been, as you say, subject to a massive bidding war uh, after its presentation just before MIP and also at MIP TV. But then the first one, I think, came out in Brazil, I think it was. But then what started to happen was that as other productions came on stream, it began to fail. Uh, the tech failed, the ratings failed, lots of things began to fail. And I think in France, they did five episodes and stopped it. In Germany, they pulled it after a couple of episodes. And so by the time they got to ITV, who had it in development, in, in pre-production, they said, OK, we're just not going to go ahead with this at all. We're just not going to take the risk. Well, I nearly dropped my toast the other day because <laughs> I turned over to Channel 5 and, blow me down, there was an, an episode of Watercolour Challenge. I thought, 
hang on a second, like that's from like 20 oh. years ago. And actually it's yet another reboot on Channel 5 to sort of add to them bringing back Challenge Annika and Eggheads. So not only is there, they brought back Watercolor Challenge, which is just like a, you know, an amateur painting competition where they get um, four artists to paint a, a pretty scene in, in three hours. There's also, of course, Neighbours has been cancelled and the soap opera from mm-hmm. Australia. And one of the major reasons why it's been cancelled is because Channel 5 have said we don't want to show it anymore. And as somebody on Twitter commented, there would have been long odds on Neighbours being cancelled because Channel 5 preferred to reboot Cash in the Attic with Chris Kamara, <laughs> which is effectively what is going to go oh, into that Lord. slot. So obviously this... Um, rebooting strategy is is working for channel five i know kind of why they're doing it because for example eggheads has been quite a clever buy for them because they know that they're quite weak in the sort of shiny floor formatted mm. quiz type genre they do an awful lot more sort of factual and factual entertainment stuff on channel five yes that's right i mean they they, they hoovered up blind date if you remember as well um mm. and of course big brother they built a schedule by bringing over a string of mainstream shows that have either, as you say, come to an end or they're rebooting onto Channel 5, like Blind Date, for example, which is quite a crafty way of establishing a, establishing a solid schedule that's, that's got a sort of nostalgia value, but also feels very mainstream. Talking of Chris Kamara, I'm intrigued already to where this is going (laughs) Talking of Chris Kamara Sky have commissioned a series from our friends at ZigZag Called Player Pranks I've got to make sure I say that right Player Pranks (laughs) Um, Which is a short run of half hour episodes Basically it's a kind of hidden camera show Or I suppose a hidden Kamara show (laughs) (laughs) Because it features uh, former Man City and England defender Micah Richards He's teamed up with his Sky Sports colleague Adam Smith And basically they're going to play pranks on big names in football using Using the usual toolbox of hidden cameras, props and actors and so on so, okay. I mean, it's always interesting with hidden cameras to see where you can go with it. And I think I think they are going onto the field as well as, you know, not just stalking them in their million-dollar mansions. So um, mm. that will be interesting to see how they do something a little bit different with the hidden camera genre. Hmm. And finally, there's been a bit of a, a full circle in the formats business, Justin. Mm-hmm. We've had Jonathan Code on the show before talking about a format called Hair, which was effectively BBC's, quotes, version, quotes, of the Great British Bake Off type challenge format. And we were talking about the merits of whether that, because you changed it from cake to hairdressing, whether that made it a new format or not. Mm. Well, there's a new format coming out for E4 called The Big Blowout, which is a... Hairdressing challenge, and there's like a typical set of challenges, and like there's a big complicated hair challenge at the end of it to decide who's the winner. Uh, But this time, the show is actually going to be made by Love Productions, (laughs) i.e., the Great British Bake Off people. Ah, interesting. (laughs) So finally, they've been able to reclaim the well, the space that they they say that they've created and they've uh, made their own version of the show that they think copied them. We'll have to wait and see whether that's something that audiences will die for. Excellent. Very good. 
Now, in a previous episode, our Weakest Link special, we were graced by Lynn Sutcliffe, but we had more of that interview to touch on other areas, so here is the rest of our chat with Lynn. Our special guest started with the BBC development team, uh, where she helped bring the weakest link to our screens. She's also been instrumental in shows such as Dog Eat Dog, Friends Like These, Strictly Come Dancing and Tipping Point. She's now managing director of Mighty Productions and has a personality that's as colourful as her jewellery. It's Lynn Sutcliffe. Hi, Lynn. Oh, that's a nice introduction, David. Well, you know, colour is important to you because you've got a bright pink logo and, and explain how that sort of links with your personality. I've got a bright pink office, actually. Um, I hope my, my, my lovely business partner, Mr. Hugh Rycroft, doesn't, doesn't mind the fact we've got a bright pink office. Um, I just think that uh, television is meant to brighten up our lives a bit and um, I'm trying to keep my hands very still at the moment so I don't rattle my jewellery. And uh, the beautiful sound quality on your lovely podcast. You you were in the theatre originally, and then you say you got into TV by accident. So how did that happen? Well, I was working at the um, Young Vic running the youth theatre there. And I used to get lots of calls from casting agents saying, um, we need 17 redheads for this recording of this strange game show they all must be under 18 and lively and so I was started to kind of run a bit of an informal casting agency I thought I wonder if I should get into this for for real and then I realized that the wages in telly were a little bit more than the wages in theatre and if ever I was going to try and do anything grown up like have a baby or own a house I should probably consider that so I started to kind of just dip my toe into telly a bit by casting. So I, I cast all sorts of things, dating shows mainly in the beginning, loads and loads of dating shows. I used to hang around in nightclubs and find single people. <laughs> Not hard. <laughs> in, their, in their dozens and their, their hundreds sometimes, really. I did, I did Dating Hell and I did... Um, Oh, I, I'm not going to list them all because it's just it's an embarrassing string of, of dating shows. When I was working at one of these indies, I kind of realised there was this whole world of development about which I knew nothing. And I think it was just around the time that development was kind of being valued as a kind of career path in its own right and not something that you did between jobs. And I um, I knew that they were working on a, on a new show. And I stayed late a couple of nights and wrote down some ideas for it and gave them to the producer and said, I'm really interested in development. And they were like, oh, are you? So I kind of Hmm. wheedled my way in a bit like that, really. Hmm. The lovely David Frank, who who sadly left us a few weeks ago, he was was somebody who said, if you want to develop ideas properly, you've got to give people dedicated time. So you you, you were the BBC development team, and was it with with David Young at that time, or? Yes. Because that was a, a, a very fruitful period of, of, of years, wasn't it? Oh, gosh, it was amazing. David managed to put together this amazing team, Sarah Edwards and Amanda Wilson and Howard Davidson, Gail Sloan as well. And we just had this extraordinary time, just a real purple patch of being able to have the time and the amazing colleagues. And we invented a whole raft of ideas that had a life in this country and abroad. 
and then you actually got to to uh, work on getting formats from the international market and apparently you helped discover dragons then i did and the apprentice actually mm. yes i don't know i don't know how much we should say about the apprentice really me and my lovely colleague james fox brought it back to britain and we had um, an exclusive window on it and um, we couldn't get anybody at the BBC to to buy it, even though they later bought it from India at a much inflated price. So um, <laughs> I don't know. Okay. I don't know how much we should we should dwell on that really. But uh, I okay, we'll, we'll, we can gloss over that. Well, I don't know. I mean, I brought, we brought it back as a VHS in a suitcase and went rushing into the BBC, going, "Look, look, we've got this! It's amazing!" And we couldn't get anybody interested. So. Dragon's Den was originally Tigers of Money, the Japanese original. Yes. Now, that was a different boss of mine who brought that to our attention. That was um, Jonathan Glazier. He discovered an international version of that and was like, have a look at this. What can we do with this? So, yeah, I've, I've worked with some wonderful people over the years. Um, you need to surround yourself with, with good, clever people, I think, and it all pays off in the end. Speaking of good, clever people, Hugh Rycroft, who's been now behind many different quiz shows, brought Tipping Point to you when you were at RDF. Explain a little bit about how that came about, because that's a a tricky show to get off the ground, I imagine, because either it works or it doesn't. And and in order to get it to work, you you had to build this huge machine. There was a step before that, which um, Mm. actually links to the objects I brought to show you today. So I purchased for, I think it was seven ninety nine a miniature coin push machine from a toy store, um, <laughs> which came with some really tiny, rubbishy plastic coins, which we didn't like because it didn't make the right sound. We wanted to have the sound of real money fa- falling around. So we used to go to pictures with our little penny push machine and we used to get people to play it. It made a terrible sound when you put it on. You're going to go, and it was really, really slow. And I used to say to people, but imagine this, the size of a kind of super king size bed. And imagine these great big discs. And and people just couldn't imagine it. We could, me and Hugh absolutely could. And we couldn't really get anybody else to share our vision. So in the end, I went back to the lovely David Frank and said, if you give me £12,000, we can build a prototype, life-size prototype. Luckily, he had this little fund called the, um, it's called the Innovation Fund. And I went and applied to this fund at RDF and they gave me this money. And we built this life-size model of it. And we put it in a studio in Hammersmith. And we invited every channel to come at kind of hours interval during the day. And by the end of the day... We had several people interested. The following week, we took it to the ITV scene dock. Peter Fincham came down and played it. He didn't know the way to the scene dock, which I thought was a bit telling. <laughs> but um, he was brought down and, and he played it. And it was commissioned in the room. And it's wow. 10 years next year, I think, tipping point. Um, I saw Ben Shepard the other day and he was saying, when you come to the 10-year anniversary, and I said, Certainly will. So this little model, this tiny little model of this penny push machine began the whole thing, really. And and David Frank's vision in giving us that investment money. 
in, in investment terms, twelve thousand pounds might not sound that much mm. to some people, but I mean, it's effectively what like almost one development person's wages for six months. You know, you could you could either have their ideas for six months or this machine. I mean, sometimes you despair, don't you, in commissioners' lack of imagination because you're saying surely you can imagine a supersized, and then we put that same machine on a on a flatbed lorry and we took it to MIP, we took it to Cannes and we put it um, in a bedroom at Cannes and people from all around the world came and, um, and, and, and lovely, lovely, <laughs> lovely Steve was up a ladder dropping the, dropping the coins in the various drop zones as they've become called because um, we didn't have the automatic coin drop mechanism at that point. Mm. Steve Webster, Webbo, um, oh, up yes. a ladder. And in between going out to have a glass of wine on the croisette, it wasn't, it wasn't a bad job, really. Uh, <laughs> so uh, then you have set up uh, Mighty Productions with Hugh Rycroft. What's the, the key challenge for when you set up your own label and it's you know your name over the door? Gosh, well, I think the first thing to do is pick the right business partner. And Hugh is amazing. He's smart and clever and funny and kind, despite all the difficulties we've been through during, you know, pandemic productions being closed down. And we've we've never had a crossword in the over 20 years that I've worked with him, really, which I think is quite an accolade, really, isn't it? To both of us. Yes, mm. And um, I spend more time with probably my business, you know, colleagues than I do with my family. So it'd be, it's quite nice to like them. Um, and we have a policy that you have to be very good at what you do, but you have to be very nice as well. Otherwise, we're we're not working with you. So that that's our that's our rule. That's on our website somewhere. So looking at development in general, and I know this is a hard question to answer, but what are you looking for? You know, a lot of people who listen to this podcast are are creators or would like to be creators of TV shows. What are the qualities of the things that stand out to you? I suppose the thing is, because I've been working in development for about 25 years or something, I've heard an awful lot of ideas. So make me sit up. It really does have to be something very fresh that makes me literally think I haven't heard that before. Gosh, that is interesting. I mean, I don't know if I should say this, but David brought an idea recently to me and here and I thought, I haven't heard that before. That's really interesting because most things, no offence to people, because sometimes people weren't even born the first time this idea came around. You know, those ideas have been around and I've got quite an encyclopedic memory for format. So sometimes I really annoy people by saying, oh, it's a bit like this thing that was on in 83, crossed with this thing that was on in 97. And and people get really annoyed because they're like, well, how do you remember that? It's really hard to come up with something fresh. And sometimes it is looking at what's been done before. Sometimes it is just putting uh, a new turn of the wheel on something. I mean, that's a terrible expression that commissioners really, really over overuse. But it has to be something that I think piques our interest because we do have a couple of really amazing in-house people doing development and we have quite a big back catalogue of ideas between us too. And Hugh very cleverly, cleverly never really worked for anybody. So he's got a very big back catalogue of ideas that aren't owned by anybody else besides him. So I'm afraid that we do turn down about 99.99% of ideas that we get. 
send and we don't encourage people to send us ideas for that reason mm. sorry format creators that sounds a bit <laughs> isn't it? <laughs> it's realistic to set expectations like that yes um because that is that is genuinely sort of the odds you're you're, you're facing at, at various stages not just the initial pitch but um all the way down the chain yeah, exactly. And the ideas we have in a year and the ideas we pitch in a year and how many we actually get commissions. If you do one of those flow charts sometimes, it's incredibly depressing because you think we mm. actually survived the year on four ideas getting commissioned. And, you know, we probably talked about 100 times more than that. Mm. I think part of the issue is that people who don't work in television, their reference point is television. Their reference point is what they've seen. Yes as opposed to what what often people in the profession are trying to do, which is to think of things they haven't seen. So it's kind of inevitable that there's a the percentage of derivation is going to be higher. Yes, that's a, that's a really good point, Justin, well put. And also you've developed a number of um, non-game shows as well in terms of um, like what you might call lifestyle format, daytime formats. How are they different? Because, I mean they have less rules and, and that sort of the ideas are simpler. How do you kind of build out a sort of a, a basic idea into something that, ha- that has got 30 or 45 minutes worth of entertainment into it? Well, quizzes are still my absolute favourite thing to to grow and develop and make. But sometimes you get a bit hoist by your own petard in the sense that there aren't that many slots. And if something is successful, it just sits there forever like tipping point it just sits there and you can't pitch anything else for that slot because once people have found something that works they they want to really bear with that we've just done a new prime time quiz for channel four which is called one and six zeros and that's um a million pound quiz with Dara O'Brien so that's mm-hmm. been a really exciting thing to develop but to answer your question David we found that quite often talent will unlock that you know, we pitched this idea for the BBC Centenary, a kind of history of children's television and how children's television has always been kind of slightly ahead of the curve and just quietly radical and really ahead of the game in terms of kind of disability portrayal and race portrayal. And Connie Huck telling that story gives it a whole extra value because she was a children's TV presenter she was coming from the position as a non-white young woman working in that industry. And it gives you a whole new aspect to the idea. So like with our Style Fixers idea, which has just been recommissioned for a second series on BBC Scotland, we've got this amazing pair of friends working on that, presenting it, Jamie and Alana. And they have taken, you know, I'm not saying the format was... The format was pretty standard, but they have made it something really quite magical by bringing their own brilliant friendship and knowledge and Scottish spark to that. They've really raised it above the ordinary. And I think that that's worked on quite a few of our kind of our more factenty kind of ideas that the talent has helped raise it higher. Lynn, we ask everybody to show and tell us something that has somehow influenced their career. So what have you brought to show us? Well, I've brought this little children's toy, David, and it's a little plastic penny push machine, which I think we bought for $7.99 from a toy shop. (laughs) And it was really instrumental in helping us sell Tipping Point. 
Well, uh, we look forward to seeing uh, what all your other fantastic upcoming shows are going to be like. So, uh, But in the meantime, uh, thank you so much, Lynn, for coming on TV Show and Tell. Thank you very much, David and Justin. Cheers. Now, it struck me the other day that we're hurtling towards the end of our current second series. Don't worry, we're not going anywhere. But we thought we should try and finish off our little mini-series on how to pitch. Now, at the end of the last session, we got you up to the door. So we're knocking on the door, we're opening it up, and hopefully we're going to get a rapturous round of applause as we go and present the world best <laughs> format. So, Justin, what are the steps we need to do while we're in the room? Well, the first thing is to hope that the door actually opens, uh, because uh, in the US particularly, there's a terrible habit of postponing pitch meetings at the very last minute. It's so common to say, oh, can we just push it back when you're in the cab, practically, or even if you're sitting in reception. But let's assume that you get through the door. I think the first thing probably to say is that there's two main objectives. And when I when I go into any meeting, I always try to think, what is it that I want to come out of the meeting with? Always try to th- I always try to visualize the end. Because what I find is that in most meetings, no one around the table really has any idea where the meeting's going. They don't really have an idea what the agenda or the purpose of the meeting is. They're just coming to a meeting. And the person who knows that is usually the person that can lead it and can, can direct it. So obviously, one purpose is to sell your format. You want to try and get to the closest point to moving the sale of your your format on. But the other thing is you want to be able to come back. So let's assume that you know the odds of you actually selling this show to this person today is quite low. So what else is the purpose of this? And that is to be able to come back with another idea on another day. So you're basically marketing yourself. You're, you're there to say, look, you know, I'm a good guy, good person with a great idea. I have lots of great ideas. And the next time I say, can I come in and see you? You're going to say, yes, this is the guy I want to see. So you're not just selling the format, you're selling yourself. So what else? Be on time. In fact, be slightly early, I would say. You know, there's no excuse for being late. They have every excuse for being late to a pitch meeting. They probably will be. I work with a company who were fabulous and extraordinarily good people, but they did have this habit of turning up to the BBC like two minutes before their meeting started. Now, if you've if now if you know anything about the BBC it's like getting into Fort Knox is easier yeah because like first of all they'll have forgotten how you spell your name and then you have to print you a badge and then then like oh sorry the computer's lost your lost your photo from the last time can you retake it etc mm. etc et yeah that's very very good advice and it plays into the my next point which is given that your meeting probably won't start on time you may not have as long as you think you do So you should always be able to adapt your pitch to the length of time that you actually get. I don't know if it's apocryphal, but I believe that there is a true story of a US executive who had an egg timer. And he said, okay, welcome in, sit down. All right, here's my five-minute egg timer. When the five-minute egg timer gets to the end of Mm -hmm. the time, the meeting ends. And genuinely, that's how he managed his time. And 
the very second the last grain of sand fell, he said, right, thanks very much. I will let you know. And that was it. Well, I can I can actually believe that. I was pitching to an American executive just a couple of months ago, and it was on Zoom, which wasn't ideal. And I said, <laughs> I said hi, and he said, what have you got? Uh, we were in there. <laughs> that was it. <laughs> it's pretty brutal pitching to the Americans. You know, they they want to know what it is right now. If they don't like it, they say they don't like it and they move on. So in some ways, it's very good practice. The only thing is you've sometimes got to dial that back when you're in other cultures where they want a, a nice long chat and talk about the kids and talk about the weather and have a moan about something and talk about how difficult their job is. And in my early days, I didn't know that I needed to let that run. I would just sit there saying, you're thinking, hang on a second, I'm here to pitch a show. I don't care about your personal life. And I, I would be with another more senior person who would be saying, yeah, no, gosh, so so Katie must be in year five by now. And I'm thinking, how do you know their child's name? <laughs> well, if researched it. I'm told that um, Andrew O'Connor, the former magician and, and TV executive, was a master of that, of, of negotiating like just enough sort of personal news that you could exchange, mm. then get in the pitch and then like get out the door in good time. So it feels like you haven't sort of like maxed out the full hour just because you've got an hour. I think that's very, yeah, that's very good psychology actually, because they're usually going from meeting to meeting to meeting. And if you can leave them 10, 15 minutes at the end, uh, that's brilliant. So there was a great example with a show called Viva Cabaret, which was a cabaret show on Channel 4 late night, which was set in a kind of Day of the Dead, Mexican Day of the Dead sort of cafe. And so they got permission from the guy's PA to come into his office while he was at lunch. And they turned his office into a Mexican Day of the Dead cafe. Mm. Uh, with sort of check tablecloths and candles made of skulls and all this kind of thing, which was all kind of cool. But the really cool thing was they didn't turn up to the meeting. They just left him a bottle of beer and two copies of the proposal on the table. Right. So, so that he had an hour to just sit in his cafe and read about it, which was a very, very high-risk strategy. But it did get them co the commission. I once heard of a show that they were pitching called House of Elvis, which effectively was Big Brother, but everybody in the Big Brother house mm -hmm. was an Elvis impersonator. And so what they did is that they, they brought in 10 Elvis impersonators and brought them in with them to the meeting mm. to sort of give the commissioner <laughs> some idea of what it would be like to spend time with 10 Elvises. Elvi. That's funny. Okay, so a few quick tips. Uh, what to wear. I always think that it's important to show respect to the person that you're pitching. I know that some people think, you know, creative people need to dress down and maybe I'm old fashioned. But even within casual clothes on a 20 year old, I still think that you can show respect by being smart and clean and brushed up and gelled and everything else. You, you know, you are there ultimately for a business meeting. You're there to ask for a great deal of money. And I think you need to look as if you can be trusted with it. Going back to what you said about, you know, arriving, another thing is be nice to everyone because you don't know the status or influence of the person you meet when you first arrive. You know, the person who comes and collects you from reception, you know, might be a very junior uh, operative or they might be their personal assistant or they might be their second in command or they might be their boss, frankly. 
I remember going to the BBC with a very well-known, very senior journalist. And um, when we arrived in the room, the person who brought us to the room, he said to her, a cup of tea would be nice, love. Um, and that turned out to be the person that we were pitching to. So that did not go well. Um, also, you know, broadcasters are vertical organisations. You know, they tend to promote from within very often. So the person that's, you know, the commissioning editor's assistant one month is the assistant commissioning editor the next month. Um, mm. And they will remember and also, as as you're going in again, I'm afraid I've I've seen situations where people have spent the first five minutes when they're trying to get to the room just complaining about why didn't reception let us in and they never have my badge ready and etc oh. etc et and just just complaining about ev everything to do with the, this institution that they're about to ask for two million pounds. Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, you know, you don't often get treated, you know, like royalty when you arrive these institutions but you need to behave as if you're being treated like royalty and you need to be gracious and you need to put aside your personal feelings you need to stay calm look relaxed look excited that's okay because you know you're coming in with something that you you really really believe in i find if you've got more than one person in the room the person you're expecting it gives you time to work out who the other people are it gives you time to memorize their names and to work out their status. And sometimes they arrive and you've almost got to sometimes go across the room and, and shake their hand and say, you know, so, you know, hello, my name mm. David and you are. Because you, you may not know, they may be a relatively new recruit to the department or whatever, but sometimes they, they, are, they sometimes do assume that you know everybody and maybe you should you should do your research and try and find out who these yeah. people are but like you know sometimes it, it is somebody who's just started and then they haven't updated their website or they've maybe like come from a slightly different department and they're just sitting in for interest's sake or they may be from scheduling and they may, may not have such a public profile yeah. etc yeah absolutely so what about the actual main part of the pitch in terms of the meat and potatoes of it it's pretty straightforward really um i think the main thing to say is a pitch of a TV show isn't something where you hold stuff back. It's not like a sales pitch where, you know, you're, you're going through it saying, and there's more, and there's more, and there's more. You need to shove it all up the front because that's the thing they're going to hang on to. So you need a title that says what it is. You need a, a tagline. You need to tell them very, very, very briefly what it is, what the idea is, and just get it out there before you go on, because they, they need a roadmap. It really helps if you can turn it round into a sort of question, which draws them into a conversation, you know, so it's, you know, you know how people do this, or you know how everyone Googles their symptoms before they go to the doctors, and you're immediately drawing them into a into the zeitgeist, into a shared experience, that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. I always, with formats, I always try to say, you know, what question is it answering your format? So the question that, say, Doctors versus Internet answers is, could people use the Internet to diagnose an illness better than a doctor? Which is, again, is a great question to ask mm the commissioning editor right at the top yeah it's what we would probably call a clickbait title these days yeah it, yeah exactly that if you've got a taste of tape to show it but again don't rely on it don't hang everything on it don't 
wait till you've shown it before you tell them what the idea is. It's there to support your verbal pitch, but it isn't your verbal pitch. Would you dare to lean in and say, you know, you've got that sort of Thursday 8.30 slot that's not doing very much. How you know, do you think this would fit <laughs> that? Do you, do you let them worry about scheduling? I certainly think you should know that. I would try to get them to find that. Because it is dangerous territory. You know, you, you don't know what's going on in the world of scheduling. That Thursday slot might be something that they commissioned they're really proud and defensive about. <laughs> I think you need to be careful about that. But you could sort of say, I think this would really work, you know, midweek um, before the news, maybe after a show that's delivered a kind of female skewed audience around 8pm. Mm. And they go, oh, yeah, I've got one of those, you know. Um, so I think, I think, you can you can imply it you can lead them there if you're doing any kind of game show that you're pitching yeah this is the moment you play it so you know this is where we talked before about having all your materials ready but if it's any sort of game the pitch isn't going to go anywhere unless you actually play it in the room either with the people you've brought with you or ideally including the commissioning editor with you you know, otherwise it's a it's a you know it's a pretty rapid canter through through the idea, and be open to questions. I mean, again, it can get very difficult if people interrupt thirty seconds in and start asking questions when you haven't got your uh, your story out. But that's again another reason for for using right at the top to tell the core idea in one go. I think that what you need is one person in your team who does what. Edward de Bono used to call blue hat thinking. In other words, worrying about the process of the process. Mm. In other words, like, when are we going to wrap up? When do we need to pack up by? When is this meeting going to end? Uh, because there's just nothing worse than the commissioner still standing up and going, sorry, I've got to go to another meeting now. And yeah. you haven't finished the conversation. You haven't sort of given yeah. the last bit of the presentation. You haven't... That, that's absolutely brilliant advice, David. You're absolutely right. You, you, you need to divide up those roles before you go in the room. You've got the person who's representing the company. You've got the person who's going to just describe the idea. And ideally, as you say, you've got that third person that's, that's observing and managing the meeting and who can see when their attention is starting to drop, uh, keeping an eye on the clock. And has got some techniques for pulling them back into the story. And so, yeah, absolutely right. One, one other thing to say is you know, never, ever pitch something with alternatives. Mm -hmm. You know, never pitch a show and then say, well, here's an alternative version of it. You could do it like this. It only confuses things and it makes it feel like you haven't really worked it out. Another little tip that I picked up years ago was about eye contact. Mm -hmm. Eye contact matters. It shows that you're interested, holds people in the space that you want them to be. Being British, we all get terribly embarrassed about it. One trick is to look at their eyes and try and work out and describe in your head where their eye color is um, so that actually your brain is doing something else but it looks like that you're staring into their eyes and how many red eye flights they've been on before they've come to your pitch yeah. yes well that can work too and also spread that around so because again you don't always know who the decision maker is in the room I heard of a, one magician. What he used to do is he cut out photographs of celebrities from magazines, cut the eye out, and then put them 
stick them on on the backs of chairs in the auditorium <laughs> so that when he was on stage he could practice looking around the room and rather than just tunnel visioning in the middle brilliant listen you know i mean we're having this conversation i'm doing too much of the talking <laughs> but you do need to listen you shouldn't do more than 50 percent of the talking in a pitch because if you're talking they're not you know and they're not going to listen for a hundred percent of the time so you need to stop talking and start listening make notes it's okay to write stuff down as well in a meeting you know people very much often come out and they can't quite remember what everybody said or what they were supposed to do or what you know what the commission editor liked and didn't like it actually shows respect and don't do it with your phone because it just looks like you're sending a text to your mum i think the last thing i would say is never argue never ever argue because, you know, you you will have bad pitches. You'll go to pitches where you think they really don't like it and you get a bit snotty, and they're the people who do. <laughs> and you go into pitches where it all goes amazingly and you never hear from them again. But what you mustn't do, I, mean, I have heard that when Simon Cowell were pitching Pop Idol to VH1, um, they got into an argument amongst themselves about how many episodes there would be in a in a season. Um, and this went down very, very badly and it's kind of killed the pitch dead. So, I mean, obviously never argue with the commissioning editor, but never, ever disagree amongst yourselves. Now, it has been known, Justin, that on this show we have occasionally said that perhaps things were better in the old days. And, um, well, is that actually true? So... Thankfully, due to the wonders of the internet, a lot of uh, old scheduled information is freely available. So just as a sort of a little end of term bit of fun, I looked down the schedules for the day I was born and what a schedule, <laughs> what a schedule it is. And there's a number of interesting things that I think come out of those exercises like this that sort of give you a bit of a reality check. I mean, mm. first of all, I mean, like, obviously there was uh, three channels in these, in these days. The BBC's first channel only started at 12.25. Yeah. <laughs> you know, there was mm. nothing in the morning. I remember that. Uh, and the first show is uh, a chance to meet uh, the creator of Godspell. So, like, you know, just really hitting it with the, the popular the popular culture there. Then at one o'clock, we have Hlaipraud Lad, uh, which is Welsh for country trails or country ways, uh, which again sort of shows that they were having to cater for all the nations, not in the, the days of everybody having necessarily all of their individual programs. So that like one channel is having to sort of do the heavy lifting for Wales and Scotland and Northern Ireland, etc. Mm. Then <laughs> one forty-five after the news. We have a show called The Fanatics, which is about people with unusual enthusiasms. And the unusual enthusiasm, in this instance, is the England women's football team. <laughs> <laughs> so that how, how unusual is the, the, the fact that the, England has a women's football team in 1973? Mm. Then, <laughs> again, going in with the popular culture, at 2 o'clock, it's the world of the 11th Duke. Which is a film about one of the last remaining dukedoms of Britain, the Duke of Devonshire. And that's 50 minutes long. And then in the afternoon, there's lots of children's programming. So, of course, that doesn't happen on BBC One anymore. Yeah. That's all yeah, that would, been shoveled off after. But usually kicked in at about sort of 
three about half past three four o'clock yeah so there's play school from four o'clock and that go all the way through pretty much to the news mm-hmm. and then in the evening we've got some kind of sitcom with Sykes. And then at ten past seven, you'll get excited because it's Star Trek, proper <laughs> actual William Shatner Star yeah, Trek, yeah. Uh, for fifty minutes. And then there's Panorama on, uh, talking about the the crisis in Britain's prisons, about how many criminals there are, and and uh, and so on. Um, and then at five minutes to eleven later on, there's an episode of Mastermind, uh, which is one of those shows that kind of got a lucky break because of, I think it was, wasn't it? Because of um, some kind of strike action and then they had to sort of reschedule it much earlier in the evening and suddenly it became much more popular. Right. Uh, originally it was, it was actually quite a, a late night show. Um, yes, it was. It, it, it definitely was something that took a while to find its way into prime time. Um, now, I did have a quick look at things that were wasn't exactly necessarily the exact same day. Uh, there was a lot more promising stuff on uh, ITV, a lot more entertainment-led stuff. There's sort of more thrillers, more sort of variety shows. There's a comedy show with Les Dawson. Uh, I have to say, BBC on the Saturday also was a bit more promising. There was more things like Generation Game and um, and yeah. more sport and, and things like that. But I have to say, I was I was a bit disappointed, like quite how. I mean, I was expecting it to be reserved, but I mean, there's not a lot there that I, particularly on the day that I would have, mm. I picked out there that I would have actually watched. I mean, obviously, at the, at the well, maybe maybe it's a little bit different a few years later in 1986. So I didn't choose the day of my birth because obviously there was only one channel and it was in black and white and live when I was born. No, that's not true. But I picked January 1986. So one of the things that you then now see as breakfast television Mm -hmm. because breakfast TV had started in about 1983, I think. Uh, So that was new. However, uh, before and after it, we had probably one of the most compelling forms of television that I can remember, actually, which was Pages from CFAX. Oh, (laughs) really? Pages from CFAX just sort of... One after the other for over an hour. So for international listeners, the CFAX was like this sort of like text information thing that they managed to sort of broadcast in the hidden hidden lines that you couldn't quite see at the top and bottom of your of your television picture. And then there was ways for the, the television to decode that if you had a box that you plugged into your TV. But they were, if for people that didn't have access to these boxes, they would often broadcast these pages live. Yeah. Yeah, so these pages were on from 6 till 6.50, 9.20 till 10.30, and then 11.15 till 12.30. Wow, that's just a... Pages from CFAX. Oh, sorry, more. And then from 2 till till 4. As well. Don't, <laughs> don't give them ideas, Justin. They're, 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 they're going to bring it back. They're going to go, we could, we could fill half the schedule with this stuff. Seriously, just think pages from CFAX, Cash in the Attic. It's, it's no, pa- just pages from BBC things. News. Like They'll just, just get somebody to sort of bring up a web browser and, and like a mouse with a scroll wheel and like just scroll through pages from the website. So something else that we've kind of forgotten about was uh, at 7 o'clock was Wogan. So this, I think, was the period when Wogan was on uh, three times a week. Uh, so extraordinarily sort of heavy turnover of guests that you needed to have to fill a chat show, you know, primetime chat, chat show three times a week. So there were a lot of 
celebrity guests and things, but they also used to uh, put in, you know, members of the public who had an interesting story or something funny had happened to them or they had a secret profession, that kind of thing. I mean, you say that, but like, look at the one show now and how many guests that they have to get through like five five days a week. I suppose that's true, but they have a lot of different items. You know, with Wogan, it literally was a man sitting in a chair waiting for one person to come and join him on another chair. So they they did have to carry a great deal more. But, but you know, that's true, actually. You're right. And then in the evening, I think what's worth pointing to was Dynasty. So Dynasty would be at 10 past 8 to the 9 o'clock news. And I think, again, when people complain about television today, they don't realise that in the 1980s, far, far more of our schedules were filled up with American programming. Uh, this was partly driven by Michael Grade when he came into the BBC. As you say, ITV had a very strong entertainment schedule at that time and a lot of a lot of very, very well-known chat-show hosts and comedians and people on their roster that featured you know, throughout the week. And he brought with him shows like Dallas, Dynasty, Starsky and Hutch, Cagney and Lacey, Dukes of Hazard, uh, And these shows, you know, they weren't just on, they were on in prime time. Sometimes you'd have an evening where, the, you know, it was pretty much all that was on. Now, as a kid, I remember being very excited about that, you know, having, as you say, grown up with a very po-faced type of programming that you talked about. It was very exciting to see a show set on the mean streets of New York with, you know, graffiti-covered subway trains and drug dealers on every corner. You know, it was, it was amazing. But none of it was made in the UK. So there was a period where, where you know, drama was essentially coming from, from elsewhere. The nine o'clock news, of course, you know, again, for, for a very, very long time, the news was at nine. And that was the absolute solid, solid slot. It took a very, very, very long time to be able to shift it. <laughs> ITV had the news at 10. Um, but the big advantage that ITV had was that between eight and 10, you know, they could run, a, you know, gold standard two-hour drama series and the BBC just didn't have that slot to do it and of course we had the watershed as well at nine o'clock which in theory still exists um, though it's almost impossible to police these days so again any kind of serious drama couldn't run before nine o'clock and at nine o'clock you had the news so you couldn't really get into that drama till after the news at half past nine quarter to ten so um yeah so very 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 different times but i do think we need to remember that virtually you know a huge proportion of our drama on television now is homegrown and also film nights i mean you know we used to have the wednesday night film um and again sometimes whole evenings which was taken out with a film from america the thing i would say is despite all the money that they had given that there was no competition virtually mm. I'm surprised quite how sketchy these schedules seem to us <laughs> in terms of maybe these programs actually cost quite a lot to make because the, you know, the equipment's quite bulky and takes a lot of time to research things when you've to post things. And, and Yeah, film was, film was very expensive as well. And you only had 10 minutes on a reel. Mm. So you had to change the change the tape every, for every 10 minutes but then when i look at like three o'clock on my day and it's like a it's a biography of the expressionist abstract realist naturalist joan <laughs> Erdley, 1921 to 1963 i just sort of go well actually maybe it's not so bad if there's yet another episode of 
escaped the country. So, um, <laughs> listen, mate, three o'clock, I had pages from CFAS. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, it's not so, not so bad. Well, there you are. Well, if you wanted to see what was actually on BBC on the day you were born, then there is a site called BBC Genome. That's spelled G-E-N-O-M-E. And have a look and, and, and see if things were better or not so better in the day you were born. Now, as we're coming up to the end of this season of the podcast, we thought we would take our own turn to give our own show and tell. So this time, Justin is going to regale me with one of his objects. <laughs> so what are you going to show me? Well, I am bringing you an egg, David, and not just any egg. So at the end of each series of The Crystal Maze, because we shot it in an aircraft hangar uh, in Essex, we had to clear out the set. We used to leave the set up to a certain extent for corporate events, but most of the actual props needed to be removed and mostly got rid of. Mm. So we always had a bit of an auction at the end for some of the props. Um, and because I lived at that point in a very small uh, studio flat, I obviously opted for the one of the largest props that was available, <laughs> which was a wooden dinosaur egg. So it was a dinosaur. It was an egg about, I don't know, about a two foot tall made of solid wood, beautifully carved, smooth as a baby, provided by our amazing props team at Artem. And in the game, the idea was that you went into the cell, the cell was the nest of a dinosaur, and there were eggs in nests on the ground, and you had to vault using a pole from egg to egg without touching the floor and get the crystal which was in the middle of the nest. So I lugged this thing in the back of the car um, and presented it to my extremely long-suffering wife, uh, who has since then pretty much put up with a large wooden dinosaur egg in our sitting room, where it stays in great pride of place ever since. Why that particular prop out of all the others that were being sold on? <laughs> well, probably because nobody else wanted to lug one of these things home. I think it was because... Of the craft that went into it, I think that, you know, one of the things that made the Crystal Maze a success was the extraordinary attention to detail. The The people who made our props were proper model makers who would spend hours and hours and hours, you know, putting lights inside things and obsessing about details on the sides of rockets and so on. And that was part of the joy of it. It was part of the joy that you that was the reaction of the contestants when they were taking part, was the fact that things were made so well, with such attention to detail. And you know, I always believe in television that only television can do. And there really isn't any other circumstance where people would go to those lengths and that amount of detail and care and obsession for something as trivial as what we were doing. Did they look up a particular dinosaur and, get, and it went, oh, we're going to copy this particular breed? <laughs> I don't think so, no. I mean, it basically was a shape of a, of a hen's egg, but just very large and very heavy because it needed to be trodden on. In fact, it needed to be jumped on. So they had to put the eggs into the holes in order to be able to vault over them, in order to be able to get into that. So it was a physical game, um, but one of my favourites. And as you say, yeah, we had, we had many different props from the show. I have got some others, but I think because of the size and beauty of it, uh, 
it's a particularly nice memory of the of the show. You may complain about how much space that takes up in your house, or your wife, wife might do, but the Crystal Maze fan bloggers pretty much bought the entire eastern zone of the Crystal Maze when that got sold off. So uh, they, they, they have like hundreds of props that they bought at an auction for, through a similar method. Yeah. So uh, Lord knows where they keep that. They must have a very big garage. <laughs> and it's time to play Fake or Format. And this time it's my turn to try and fool Justin with a fake show that I have hidden amongst a real show. But which one is which? And I have a pair of opposites or vague opposites for you today. So the first one is from Israel in 2012. It's called The Saddest Sketch Show in the World. And it's an outrageous dark comedy format where the sketches walk a fine line between sad and amusing. For example, the sketches might cover topics such as death or disease or incestuous relationships. So that is the first one. And the second one is from 2002. And it's from Italy, and in, it's basically in English would be called the best album in the world. What happens is a number of singers or celebrities or even talented members of the public come on to sing songs that are based on a particular theme. So it might be, let's say, autumn, romance, and then the members of the audience hold up records with an A side and a B side, and they, they vote of which of the two performances should go on the album. And then the neat thing is at the end of the show, you can download the album from Napster. That was back in 2002. Okay. So that is your choice. You've got the saddest set sketch show in the world or the best album in the world. Okay. So, um, interesting. So I know from various Israelis that I know that comedy can get extremely edgy. Uh, in Israel, there's a, there's a great uh, tradition and penchant for, for, for sketch shows and comedy stand-up that goes right to the very edge and sometimes over it. So that's quite a tempting proposition. I like the best album in the world, and I sort of get that. Um, in fact, I probably watch it. I, when did you say this came out in Italy? Uh, that was 2002. 2002 so that's what i thought early 2000s which feels a feels a little bit early for the technology that would be part of that somehow well i think napster was like 1999 that started yeah i think that of the two i'm going to go we're going to go for the israeli as the format and you would be absolutely correct. Cool. In fact, it was nominated for the Rose Door in that year. Was it? Oh, gosh. Yeah, right. in 2012, right. which I I just fell across this by just like going down some random internet wormhole and, <laughs> and finding this and thinking, wow, I'm going to make a faker format out of that. And has, has someone done a kind of building an album thing? Again, if anybody wants to pay me a lot of money to buy <laughs> that idea, then you know where to find us. Excellent. Um, Good. Well done. And that's it for this time. If you'd like to contact us, you can do so on our Twitter handle of at TV show podcast, or you can email us by spamming contact at TV show and tell dot com. Until next time, I've been David Buddicombe. And I've been Justin Scroggy. And this has been TV show and tell. <laughs> <laughs>